Heavenly Father, one day, all of us will stand before your throne. But we shouldn't stand there complete. We should stand there in our filth. We should stand there in our sin. We should stand there in our death, owed the condemnation coming to us. But because of Jesus, because of your Son, because of your great love for us, all of us who know you, all of us who have repented of our sin and followed after you, we've been washed, we've been washed white as snow, and we stand in your presence at the throne complete to receive a crown, a crown already secured for us, a crown already reserved for us, already coming to us. Lord, let us be stunned by that. Let us revel in that this morning. Let us glory in that this morning. God, this morning, would you open the eyes of your people? Would you open the ears of your people? Would you open the hearts of your people? Would you focus the minds of your people so that your word might reign in their life and take root in their hearts and transform them even more so in to the image of Christ, to even further complete the sanctification taking place in their lives. Father, say through me whatever you would have to say. We trust now in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that you most long for? What is it that your heart aches for, longs for, wants more than anything, thirsts after, hungers for? It's a significant question that I've posed to you before, and it's a significant question because it's that question that is the end to which all of our decisions are made. It's, it's that question that, that is the end to which we do everything that ultimately determines the path of our life, the direction of our life, the trajectory of our lives. You see, what all of us are longing for is all of us are longing for some type of treasure. All of us are longing for some type of reward, whatever that is. Maybe it's an ambition that we have in a career. Maybe it's a certain status for our business. Maybe it's a certain income level for our family. Maybe it's a certain standard of living. Maybe it's a certain image of our family that we have with the right number of kids and the right this and the right relationship here. But all of us have our lives zeroed in on and aimed at some type of reward that we're seeking. Some type of reward that we want above everything else. Our treasure. The scriptures are clear though. That in the life of the believer that that treasure is to be won. That those affections, that that aim, that the, the target that we have is singular. That it is Christ and it is Christ only. So I ask you, those of you that call yourselves believers this morning, those of you that I identify with Christ, is he who you most long for? Is he what you most long for? Does your heart ache for him more than anything else? Is he the treasure of your life? Now when I say that, I say that purposefully. 
Because you see, I think we have this misunderstanding of what salvation typically looks like, what, what it means to truly follow Christ. We typically come to him, or, or not typically, but often what I've found is that people come to him because they, they hate hell and they're afraid of hell. And so heaven sounds better than hell, and so they proclaim Christ because they hate hell, not because they love him. Brothers and sisters, everybody hates hell. Nobody wants to go there. That's not what makes you Christian. That's not what identifies you with Christ. What makes you Christian is not hating hell. What makes you Christian is not saying, I want Jesus so I don't go there. What makes you Christian is saying, I want Jesus because he's Jesus. Treasuring him above everything else. Treasuring him as as you understand he is the only hope that you have. And ascribing your life to him in full allegiance, in full surrender. Bringing your life into lordship under him in every area. See, that's, that's the end to which the Christian lives. It's to that treasure. To the reward that we have in Christ. To, to our treasure, Christ himself. And so we roll up our sleeves as the church and we work. Why? Because we want to glorify Christ. We roll up our sleeves and we go. Why? Because we want to, we want to further and advance the name of Christ. We roll up our sleeves and we come together for the purpose of bringing ourselves into more fully submission in, in a more full submission to him because he's the end which we're aimed this morning as we continue in our series on defining church and the defining values here at iron city those things which we believe we want to characterize and should characterize according to god's word the culture of our church and the mission of our church and the direction of our church this morning we're going to talk about our christian responsibility to roll up our sleeves for the sake of the gospel to work it out if you have your bibles turn with me to second timothy chapter 4 When we come to 2 Timothy, what we have here is very likely Paul's last letter. Paul is is in the the final moments leading up to his execution. And he's he's taken this time to to write a letter to his son in the faith, his son Timothy. Now we know that these are called the pastoral epistles. uh, And so sometimes Christians have had a tendency to take the pastoral epistles, if they're not a pastor, and just disregard them. Rip them from their Bibles and just ignore them. But what we should understand is that when we come to the pastoral epistles, is these things must be present in the life of a pastor, but should be present in the life of every believer. So, with that in mind, would you stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 8, although for our purposes today, we're going to focus primarily on verses 5 through 8. Starting in verse 4. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. When we, what's striking to me as I begin to read chapter 4 is, first of all, how similar people always are across the generations. Now, we've talked before about how we live in a devolving world, and that's certainly true that the world is worse today than it was yesterday and will be worse tomorrow than it is today. There is a sense in which the world is devolving, that culture is devolving, that it's, it's spiraling more and more into its own sinfulness until ultimately it will collapse in and on of itself on the coming of Christ. But with that in mind, there's still a sense in which people are almost always the same though, right? That people seem always pr pretty much face the same struggles, always face the same obstacles, always battle the same demons as they have always. That the, that the tricks that Satan uses to deceive us today are very similar to the ones that he used way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. I think this is clear when we come to 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 4, here's what Paul tells Timothy. As he's preparing to leave Timothy, as he's preparing Timothy to, to continue on in his ministry, he says, hey, Timothy, people are going to grow weary of your message. People are going to get tired of what you have to say, Timothy. People are going to want preachers that will entertain them. People are going to want preachers that are funny. Preacher, people are going to want preachers who have hipster clothes and cool haircuts. People are going to want preachers that, that can tell them how they can be prosperous. People are going to want teachers that can tell them how they can be successful, how they can achieve their ambitions. People are going to want preachers that can, can, can uh, break Bible codes and, and have new number systems. People are going to want preachers that can scratch the itch of their sin. People are going to want preachers that, that make them feel good about the things that they need to feel good about. They are going to want preachers that will help them justify their sinfulness. But notice how he starts verse 5. In light of that, what does Paul say? But as for you, as for you, you're going to be different. As for you. There are going to be preachers that are going to rise up and they're going to try to, to stand on some gospel that's just not the right gospel. There are going to be preachers that rise up that, that make people feel good. There are going to be preachers that rise up and, and have thousands of people that come and gather around them to, because they're scratching the right itch. There's going to be preachers that rise up and meet the needs of people, but not you. As for you, you will stand fast, Timothy. As for you, you will preach the scandalous cross. As for you, you will be a fool preaching the gospel that is only possible in Christ. As for you, you will not be like them. You see, when we come to the text this morning, with Paul's execution looming, Paul knowing that, that he's in his final hours, Paul knowing that he's in his final days, he's, he's experiencing what I have found most old saints experience. What I've come to find out is that I, I've actually had the privilege of sitting at the deathbed of a number of old saints People that lived their life faithfully to the Lord, honored him, loved him more than anyone. Matriarchs and patriarchs of the faith in their families. And what they will always talk about is they will always talk about how they're ready. They're ready. 
They're, they're, they're ready. I, I was talking with a family yesterday who said, hey, my grandmother, she was ready. She told us she's ready. They're ready to go and, and, and see Jesus. They're ready to go for that moment in which, which they will stand before his judgment seat. And though they will be trembling and though they will be on their faces, in that moment they will hear, well done my good and faithful servant. And, and, and this race, this fight, this struggle will be over. It will be behind them. They're ready to be with their Lord. See, they live with a, with a unique awareness of the judgment that's to come. They live with a unique awareness of how nearly they are to facing true holiness and true righteousness. That's where Paul is. Paul is, is talking with Timothy with an urgency. Paul is talking to Timothy with, with grave concern, with, 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 a, with a severity that only comes in this stage of life. Because you can see and you can hear in Paul's words that, that this whole conversation is framed up with the fact that, that he's going to face the judge and that Timothy too is going to face the judge. Notice how he starts in verse 1, right? He char- I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who? Who is to judge the living and the dead, right? Then go down to verse 8, the, the other end of the, the other bookend, the other, the other way he kind of frames this up, this up. Henceforth, there is laid up for the crown of righteousness, which, is the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Here's what Paul's telling, to t- telling Timothy. You let everybody else worry about the judgment of men. You let everybody else worry about their approval ratings with men. You let everybody else worry about how, what men think of you. But as for you, you prepare yourself for the judgment of the Lord. You prepare yourself for that day when he returns and the, and the sky parts and the trumpet sounds. You prepare your heart. You prepare yourself for that day. Because that day is the only day that matters. The day that you stand before the Lord and whether or not he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, or not, that is the only day that matters. See, what Paul has is what every gospel pastor, gospel preacher has. See, the scriptures are clear that one day all of you are going to stand before the Lord. All of you. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, believer and unbeliever. And you will be judged for the good and the bad that you've done. You will give an account of your life. Do you know what it says also? It says that the pastor, the pastor, the the under-shepherd, those that, that Christ has entrusted the flock to, will give an even greater account. That I will give an account for the way that I have prepared you for that moment. That Aaron and Zach, that all of the under-shepherds of Iron City Baptist Church will stand before the king and we will give an account for the way that we prepared you for the judgment. For the way that we prepared you to stand before the Lord. So there's urgency in what I'm talking to you. There's severity when I stand here every week. If you, you wonder why I'm so intense and you wonder why I'm so, so bent, it's because there's a severity. I'm going to face a judgment here. And I know that you are going to face a judgment here. There's urgency in what we're talking about. And so Paul is feeling for Timothy the same thing that I feel for you. That I know that you live in a world that values prosperity. And I know you live in a world that 
that, that values your, your position in life. And I know that you live in a world that is tempting you at every corner and drawing you in at every corner and, 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 and giving you good outs and good excuses on why you can compromise in your faith and why you can justify in your faith. And so I stand with Paul this morning to say, as for you, as for Iron City, I care particularly for you. Don't worry about what all of them think. Prepare yourself for the day of the Lord. Prepare yourself to stand for him. As for you, live outside of all of that to something greater and something higher. That's hard. And that's difficult. And I think that's where we start when we talk about rolling up our sleeves. We roll up our sleeves as those that understand that one day we're going to answer for the work that we did or didn't do. We roll up our sleeves as those that understand that one day our faithfulness is going to matter. Or our unfaithfulness. This is why when we go to verse 5, I really think verse 5 is, is the landing point of, of what Paul is trying to say. I think the first four verses are kind of feeding into verse 5. And, and the last three verses are kind of flowing out of verse 5. That, that verse 5 is really where, where Paul is wanting, what Paul is wanting Timothy to do. It's what he's wanting to see in Timothy's life. What does he say to Timothy? He says, Always, and I would circle, if you, if you write in your Bible, circle the word always. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now grammatically, the word always there should be ascribed to each one of the words that, G, that, that Paul uses. So this is how we should read this. We should read this as, as for you, always be sober-minded, always endure suffering, always do the work of an evangelist, always fulfill your ministry. Here's what's significant about that. Do you understand that as a Christian, you are always on? You're always on. There, there's never a time in which you get to compartmentalize your life, in which you get to take off the Christian hat to go over here and be a good coach. There, there's never a time in your life in which you get to take off the, Christian heart, uh, off the Christian life so that you can go over here and be a more effective lawyer or a more effective car salesman. You don't get to take off the Christian hat so that you can, in some way, be more comfortable at school or at work. No. The Christian life is to live in submission both publicly and privately. It's to live in the submission to Christ always, always. It's always being sober-minded. It's always enduring suffering. It's always doing the work of an evangelist. It's always fulfilling your ministry. That you are always a Christian. That your life is always dominated by Christ. Your life is always in submission to Christ. You see, your godliness is not demonstrated by what you do on Sunday morning. You understand that? You should. We, we should gather together. We should come together. We should enjoy coming together. We should look forward to coming together. We should worship together. We should, we should open God's word together. We should study God's word together. But that's not really when your godliness is demonstrated. And your godliness is demonstrated Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. 
Your godliness is demonstrated at basketball practice when you're coaching your boys. Your godliness is demonstrated with your patience and your bedside manner. Your, your godliness is demonstrated by the work ethic that you have at Honda. Your godliness is demonstrated by, by the, the way that the Lord is always on the essence of your, on the, on the tips of your lips. The, your, your godliness is demonstrated by when you're at home watching television with your children, that you're, you're watching things that, that doesn't desecrate everything that the Lord values. It's, your godliness is demonstrated by when you're at your dinner table and the conversations that you're having. Your godliness is demonstrated by the way that you, you get through disagreements with your spouse in front of your children. Your godliness is demonstrated by whether or not it's always on or not. You want to cut the teeth out of your child's faith? Live a life different at church than you do at home. Live a life different at church than you do at the ball field. You want your wife to lose respect for you, men? Live a life different at church in front of everybody else than you do with her. Prioritize God's word in Sunday school, but not at home. You're always on. You're always to do these things. Always to be sober-minded. Always doing the work of an evangelist. Always uh, enduring suffering. Always fulfilling your ministry. You're always doing it. Iron City, do you understand that you are Iron City all day, every day, everywhere you go? All day. Whether you go to work, you're Iron City. When you go to school, you're Iron City. When you're at home, you're Iron City. The reputation that our church has within our community will be the way that you demonstrate the gospel in your daily living when you're out there. You're always our church. Not just when we gather together. Remember how we talked last week about how we're not just an event, we're a family? You know that. You're not just a family when you're at home in the evening. You're a family all the time. You're representing your family all the time. That's hard work. And so again, we roll up our sleeves. And we persevere. We roll up our sleeves and we endure. And we roll up our sleeves committed to always living under the submission to Christ. Always honoring Him as the Lord of our lives. The next part I really think we should focus on in verse 5 this landing part for Paul, is fulfilling your ministry. I think that's really the, the one characteristic that kind of encompasses the other, or, or, or is that, that is the aim of the other. So here's what I'm saying. Always be sober-minded, always endure suffering, always do the work of evangel evangelist so that you might always fulfill your ministry. That those other three are kind of subservient to this greater one. That they are all for the purpose of fulfilling your ministry. Now this is interesting here, isn't it? This is interesting here because the language that he uses is so personal. Notice that he uses the word your, right? Your ministry, Timothy. That this was your, this is what you must do. I did what I, must, what I was to do. I did my ministry. But now you have your ministry. You have something that's specifically for you. And all of you are the same way. Each of you has been engineered in the hand of God. Engineered for something specific. You've been given specific personalities, you've been given specific talents, you've been given, given specific gifts, all for the purpose of fulfilling your ministry, all for the purpose of glorifying Christ uniquely in your life, so that when all of us come together, we bring all of our unique ministries together, we bring all of our unique giftings together, and we form a complete body that's able to then move forward and advance the gospel here into the ends of the earth. It's the picture of first corinthians 12 right where it says we're we're one body but we're many parts 
And so we, some of us are an eye, some of us are a nose, some of us are a kneecap, some of us are an ear. I think I'm the armpit. You ever feel that way? But we need the armpit. We need all of it. And so we, we all come together. As each part, we don't, we don't need a whole bunch of mouths and, and no noses. We need all of them to come and to fit together. To fulfill your ministry. To fulfill that which is specific to you individually. So that collectively we might fulfill our mission together. You see, for Iron City to fulfill her mission, each one of you must fulfill your mission. You understand that? Sometimes we, we, we divorce ourselves from the grand scheme. But each one of you plays a part. Each one of you fits in perfectly as designed by the Lord himself. As designed by the same God who designed the, the solar system perfectly. And designed the ecosystems perfectly. He has de designed the environment of the church so that what we complement one another perfectly as we come together. So let me ask you, are you fulfilling your ministry? Are you fulfilling your ministry? For, for Timothy, it was to preach the word. For you, it may be hospitality. For you, it may be caring for widows. For you, it may be that you have a specific gift in evangelism. For you, it may be cooking or, or washing dishes. For you, it may be working and building things and meeting needs. For you, it may be great generosity. And it's probably some combination of all of those. But are you meeting your mission? Are you fulfilling your ministry? Because until you fulfill your ministry, Iron City will always be handicapped and incapable of fulfilling the entirety of her mission and her ministry. And so roll up your sleeves, brothers and sisters. Roll up your sleeves and get into the game. Roll up your sleeves and, and get to work. Roll up your sleeves and, and take the giftings that you have and the skills that you have and the passions that you have and leverage them for gospel advancement and leverage them for, for gospel ministry. Because that's really when you're going to thrive. And that's really when your family is going to thrive. That's really when you, when you are in the center of God's will. John Ortberg calls that being in the flow. Being in the flow where everything is synchronized with the Lord. Paul, and as he gets to verse 6, the tone begins to change some, doesn't it? He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. If you think about when we get to verse 6, the tone is very similar to that of last week, isn't it? Last week as we studied the upper room discourse and we were in John 13, the tone was what? With, with Jesus and the disciples. I'm leaving you. I'm stepping away. I, I've got to go. I've got to go and do what you can't do, that, which is bear your weight, die for you so that you can have life. I've got to go, but you must continue on in the ministry. You must continue on in the task. And so last week in John 13, we had this, this picture of, of Jesus passing the torch on to his disciples, on to the apostles, right? And this week, what do we see? We see the next generation. We see that happening in the next generation. We see that the apostles have went. The apostles have been busy about the ministry. The apostles have been building the church. The, the apostles have been taking the gospel, the ends of the earth. And now just as Jesus handed the torch off to the apostles, we have here an apostle handing off a, the torch to one of those that he discipled. Which is, just as an aside, a picture of why discipleship is so important in the life of the church. Who are we going to hand the torch off to? What I want us to see here 
is that every generation, every generation of Christians, every generation of any given church has a gospel responsibility to the next generation. You understand that? We do. All of us have a responsibility, a generational responsibility in the gospel to make sure that it is handed over to the next generation. Let's think about that. Let's think about the path that's in front of us in our city. Understand that our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness will determine the trajectory of our families. Do you understand that? Understand, brothers and sisters, this morning that that our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness will determine the complexion of our community in the generations to come. Will our children, will our children reap the consequences of our unfaithfulness? Or will they reap the reward of our commitment to Christ? Will our community reap the consequences of our unfaithfulness? Or will our community reap the benefits, the reward of our commitment to Christ? We have a generational responsibility in the gospel to hand it over to them, to labor and to work and to press on for the gospel. Is it going to be our generation that desecrates the work of the saints that have went before us with our own laziness? And shortcuts. Is it going to be our generation that believes that that we can do this thing the easy way? Is it going to be our generation that believes that that we can just rest on the laurels of the past generations? Let it not be so. Let it not be said of us. Let it not be true of us. Let us roll up our sleeves and own the responsibility in the gospel for the next generation. That we might hand this thing over to our children. And we might hand this thing over to our grandchildren better than the way that we received it. You see, we are what every generation is. We are a bridge. One day, you're going to have a tombstone, all of you. And on that tombstone, there's going to be your birth date and your death date, and smushed in between is going to be that dash. You've, you've, You've heard about the dash before. And I think what that dash represents most clearly to me is that dash represents a bridge. It's a bridge from the birth date to the death date. It's a bridge from from your parents to your children. And the strength of that bridge, the strength of the bridge that, that you build from the past generation to the next generation, the strength of that bridge will be determined by your faithfulness, will be determined by the decisions that you make and the life that you live. How strong will the bridge be at Iron City? Because you were here. How strong will the bridge be in White Plains and in Heflin and in Calhoun County? How strong will we build the bridge? It's hard work. It's difficult. But it's never been easy. The saints that have went before, on whose shoulders we now stand, all of them understood. It was gut-wrenching. It was difficult. They pressed on. They always endured suffering. Doing the work of an evangelist. Clear-minded. So now as you fulfill your ministry, ministry, and as I fulfill my ministry, and as we fulfill our ministries, let us do the same. Let us move on in the same light. Verse 7, Paul summarizes his ministry this way. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What do all of those phrases have in common? All of those phrases speak to endurance, don't they? 
It takes endurance to go toe-to-toe for 15 rounds with a heavyweight. Swinging and pounding on each other and going and going and going and just refusing to go down and refusing to back down and refusing to quit. But round after round after round, putting your chin back out there, swinging again, pressing on again. Running a marathon takes endurance. There's, there's some points in the marathon when you're going uphill where all you do is just put the next foot out. You don't really even know how you're doing it. You just, you just put the next foot out. You're going down here, you're almost just falling with style. Buzz Lightyear style, right? You're just putting one foot in front of the other foot in front of the other foot. You're just, you're just pressing on and you're grinding it out and you're going hard. Keeping the faith. Your faith is under attack all the time. You're facing the struggles of life, the difficulties of life, the storms of life. Your marriage goes through ups and downs. Your parenting goes through ups and downs. Your spiritual life goes through ups and downs. There are days when you feel close to the Lord and days when you feel far from the Lord. There are days when your heart hurts so bad you don't know how you're going to get up out of the bed. You're really not sure if you can still trust the Lord, but you do. And you keep the faith and you press on. And it's a grind sometimes and it's hard sometimes. But you scratch and you claw and you fight the good fight and you run the good race. See, the essence of Christian ministry is endurance. The essence of the Christian life is endurance. It's not easy. Matter of fact, that's, that's why we have throughout the, the New Testament, we have Jesus and we have the apostles preparing us for hardship, preparing us for suffering, because they understand that as long as we are on this side of the grave, it is going to be about endurance. It is going to be about, about pressing on, about hard work, about long-suffering, perseverance. But this morning I want to encourage you. Because I know there are some of you that are just tired. There are some of you, you've taught, and you've taught, and you've taught, and you've taught. There's some of you, you've been on team meeting after team meeting after team meeting. Some of you have, have been with kids, and been with kids, and you've given, and you've given, and you've gone, and you've gone, and you've done, and you've done, and you're just exasperated. Here's my word for you this morning. It's twofold. We're going we're gonna to get there in verse 8, but, but before we get there, i got another word. First, is when you endure, understand you don't endure alone. You don't endure alone. Paul, throughout 2 Timothy, frames up his whole thing. One of the primary themes of 2 Timothy, I believe, is that we are going to share in our sufferings. It's been a, a theme all the way through Paul's ministry. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Philippians. He talks about it in Galatians. He talks about it all the time. I'm going to share in the sufferings of Christ. And when we come to 2 Timothy, when we come to this final lesson, this final letter, it's almost like all of that has been fully manifested. Here's why I say that. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And now we come to verse 5, and he says what? Always endure suffering. Always endure. Why? Because you are sharing that suffering. See, brothers and sisters, when you suffer, you are not alone. When you're tired, you're not alone. When you are exhausted, you are not alone. 
when you face obstacles in your faith and you press on anyway, you were standing shoulder to shoulder with the first century brothers and sisters that were lit as torches in Nero's garden. When you think your ministry's not being effective, when you think your ministry's not working, when you think all of it's not working, the kids aren't listening, the teenagers aren't listening, my class isn't listening, my, my children aren't listening, my wife isn't listening, but you press on anyway. You're standing shoulder to shoulder with brothers like William Carey, who in the face of opposition goes to India and for seven and a half years preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel without any converts, only to ultimately be the father of the modern missionary movement. When you do without for the sake of the gospel, when it costs you something, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with sisters like Lottie Moon, who... who starved herself and gave her share of the food to her Chinese friends so that they might see Christian love and grow to glorify Christ in their own lives, ultimately leading to her own death. When you refuse to quit, you stand with, with Jim Elliott, who went to the people and went to the people, ultimately at the cost of his life, only for his wife to then go and win them for the name of the gospel. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, we share in the suffering with Christ when we live lives of self-denial, when we live lives that are anchored in God's glory and God's glory alone, in obeying the Father, we share in the cross. We share in the cross on which Christ himself was crucified on our behalf as our substitute, denying himself for our sake. And so this morning, you're tired. Let me encourage you. Press on. Endure. Endure like the saints before you. Endure like the Savior that you follow. Endure. Press on, brothers and sisters. Share in the sufferings of the cross. Share in the sufferings of the gospel. Because why? Because we have verse 8. Because we have verse 8. Why could the saints endure Nero's garden? Because they had verse 8. Why could Paul endure multiple imprisonments and shipwrecks and robberies and all this stuff to ultimately be killed by his own? Because he had verse 8. Why could William Carey press on? Because he had verse 8. Let's read verse 8 together. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Elders, hold on here. Let's just be honest. Verses 5, 6, and 7 need verse 8. What's the point of enduring? What's the point of laboring? What's the point of fighting? What's the point of running? What's the point of keeping the faith if there's no reward? But there is a reward. There is a reward, brothers and sisters. And I want you to notice what he says here. Look, I, I, get you, I, I tell you all the time, like, we should be a lot more excited about verb tense around here. All right? You should pay attention in grammar class because verb tense matters when we read the Bible. All right? Be excited about some grammar up in here. All right? This will just do my heart good. I want you to read this, all right? Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Laid up. This is what we call the passive present. All right? Here's, what the, here's why this is exciting. Paul is where? Paul's on this side of the grave, right? 
Paul's on, on this side of the tomb. Paul's in prison. Paul's on the edge of death. Paul's going to have his head cut off. He says, you know what? There is already laid up for me a crown. The crown's already there, brothers and sisters. For all of you who treasure Christ, for all of you that are enduring, for all of you that are fighting, for all of you that are running, for all of you that are keeping the faith, your crown is already there. It's reserved for you. It's waiting for you. Your name's in the book. And one day you're going to stand in the presence of the judge on that day. And on that day, he's going to put the crown, the king of the universe, he's going to put a crown on your wretched head as his child. Your crown's already there. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't labor and we don't run and we don't fight as those who hope they will have a crown. We labor and we run and we preach and we endure and we persevere as those whose crown is already secured. This is the difference between works-based religion and grace-based religion. Works-based faith says, I've got to work and I've got to work and I've got to work myself to the point of misery and then just hope, wish that I could get a crown. But not gospel Christianity. Gospel Christianity says, I will work because I've already got my crown. I will work because I've already been given to. And so I will work not in my misery, I will work out in my joy, knowing that all of this enduring, all of this struggling, all of this fighting, all of this running is going to go away. And so we roll up our sleeves. And we press on. As those that love his appearing, those that want to see him more than we want to see a big bank account, those that want to see him more than we want to see our dead relatives, more than those that want to see him more than anything else we could ever imagine in our wildest dreams, we want him. And so because we want him, we press on in our joy as those that will share in his sufferings. One day, Every single one of you will stand before him. All of you. Some of you are not ready for that day. Some of you, if you were to stand before him today, would stand condemned and rightfully so. And that day you will tremble, your knees will buckle, and you will be condemned forever. For those of you that are his children, that day's coming too. And your knees are going to buckle, and your hands are going to shake, but he's going to lift you up as his child, and he's going to place a crown on your head, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in that moment, there will be no more enduring. In that moment, there will be no more running. In that moment, there will be no more fighting the good fight. In that moment, you will have won with Christ. And in that moment, you will enjoy him forever. So either take heart or repent. Take heart so that that day's coming. Or repent so that that day's coming. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, Father, 